Welcome to Central Line, Leadership in Healthcare, the show that shares stories, experiences, and advice from notable and innovative leaders in healthcare. Let's get started with your host, Leah Witchick. Carlene Donnelly has taken an innovative approach in nonprofit by using the practical application of business to increase the impact of the organization and has yielded many significant advances. In her 15 years as Executive Director of CUPS, Carlene has been able to transform the organization from a grassroots nonprofit with a budget of $650,000 to a credible $14 million organization with diverse funding sources and driven by a business framework. Additionally, she chaired a $20 million capital campaign to relocate the organization within 10 months and during a recession to accommodate their significant growth. Carlene negotiated with provincial health systems to ensure comprehensive primary and specialist care could be offered to all CUPS participants in order to ensure wraparound supports. She expanded CUPS' newly opened Child Development Centre into a two-generational model and opened a prenatal to three-child development centre in order to align with current science and have a proven, more sustainable impact for families. Under her leadership, CUPS developed program plans tied to demonstrable outcomes and the data infrastructure to prove those outcomes. This move positioned CUPS favorably in being able to speak credibly about the work they do and also secure additional funding to continue to have positive impact for vulnerable families and individuals in Calgary. Carlene honors and leverages the strength in community to address social justice issues. Firmly believing that we all have a role to play in ensuring success for all Carrierians, Carlene has actively built strong partnerships with business, government, and like-minded community organizations. Hosting three large fundraising events annually, chaired by members of Corporate Calgary, continues to bring awareness and strengthen the connection between the business community and the work CUPS does. Currently sitting on the Council of Champions led by the United Way of Calgary and area and partnering with community change agents such as the Alberta Family Wellness Initiative, Carlene has been at the table setting the change agenda for the city alongside Calgary's most influential change leaders. Constantly seeking upstream solutions to the social problems she was seeing in her career, Carlene is currently leading cups in the application of brain science and resiliency to improve outcomes for vulnerable families and individuals. Internally, she's encouraged staff to use innovative approaches in the application of the science and is beginning to see it yield encouraging results. Externally, Carlene has worked with high-profile and local community advocacy and research initiatives to shift mental models around how brains develop and the effect that trauma can have on the developing brain, and to shift systems with this knowledge. Carlene has sat on the Frontiers of Innovation Advisory Committee, which is the research and development platform of the Center on the Developing Child at Harvard University, as well as currently sits on both the Faculty of Nursing and Faculty of Infant Mental Health Advisory Committees at the University of Calgary. Recently, thanks to her leadership, CUPS participated in the Alliance for Strong Families and Communities and the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation's Change in Mind initiative, which brought together 15 agencies from across Alberta and the USA to influence big systems with the application of brain science and resiliency. Carlene was raised in Prince Edward Island and completed her BA degree of psychology from the University of PEI. 
She also completed an MA of Education from the University of New Brunswick and an MBA from the University of Phoenix. Prior to becoming Executive Director in 2003, Carlene held the Director of Operations role at CUPS, rounding out her over 20-year tenure with the organization. Prior to her work with CUPS, Carlene had consulting contracts within the provinces of Alberta, Ontario, and Nova Scotia. Since 1996, Carlene has been involved with numerous advisory and steering communities, working with all levels of government on developing strategies, policies, and recommendations surrounding the challenge of poverty and trauma for vulnerable citizens. Hi, Carlene. How are you today? I am good. I've gone on vacation tomorrow, so I have to tell you, I am um, feeling kind of perky today. Well, that's wonderful. <laughs> and welcome to Central Line Leadership and Healthcare. Why don't we just jump right in and have you share a little bit about the work you've done in the past, as well as the work you're doing now? I, I don't know that I ever had a definite career in mind. I don't, I, I can say pretty confidently that I never sat back and said, I want to be a teacher, lawyer, doctor, whatever. I knew it was more about parameters of what the characteristics of my career I wanted. Um, I wanted to be innovative. I wanted to have a leadership role that had the ability to use power in the most beneficial way. Um, and for that, I meant looking at whatever landscape my career took me with fresh eyes of being able to see the runway of what was coming down and how we would have to perhaps be innovative enough to be uh, fluid or transparent or, or just flexible to really kind of meet the needs of the current time in the best, uh, with the best impact, I would say. So I knew I always wanted to do that. I didn't know what that would look like. And I sure, uh, at, like I said, at, at 20 years old, didn't think that would be the nonprofit sector. Um, I didn't think it would be government, and as much as government plays a role and they're an incredibly good partner, they're not incredibly known for their, their flexibility and fast turnaround and innovation. Um, they certainly have uh, you know, a lot of rules and red tape, but you know, do some great, great work and, and do eventually transform itself. But I really want that ability to be nimble and, and flexible. So I think for me, it was more around providing a career that or an education that could bring about that level of flexibility and innovation. So I got my undergrad and then did my master's in, in both education and my master's in business and my MBA. And an odd combination to have a BA psychology degree, master's in education and a master in business doesn't really seem like I had a really good idea where I was going with this. But actually, um, I think it really did set the stage to have kind of a business mindset and financial kind of ability, but really also understand complex systems and education is extremely critical for anyone that wants to uh, equal the playing field to be on par or above with, with anyone else. So, and the psychology and the psychology degree was really about understanding what makes people thick, tick and, you know, how do I best kind of leverage my strengths with other people's strengths. So in some ways it did really work out, but, Again, it was more of a career and a, a, certainly an education base that seemed more like I was driving in the dark. Uh, but in some ways, looking back, I, I put the pieces together in the right way, right way that seemed to work out. I hear how important innovation and flexibility was for you throughout your career. 
So what really drew you to CUPS and the work you do now? Um, so I had done some work with the city of Calgary, actually, uh, at that time, time back in the mid-90s. They were um, moving away from being a frontline service uh, system uh, and wanted to be more community development and funder. So they were outsourcing to bids, to community bids, uh, a lot of their programs and services like the outreach program and CUPS actually so I was helping with that, and there was mental health programs, there was many other programs, but I was helping uh, make those transitions and also helping other organizations um, incorporate them into their, their uh, nonprofits on behalf of a contract a company I had that uh, worked under the city. So it was, was really interesting. So I got familiar with some nonprofits, and actually the previous um, uh, executive director, Lorraine Melkier, had heard of this work, uh, and contacted me and said, can you come? We won the competitive bid for the outreach program from the city of Calgary. Can you come help us uh, make that transition and incorporate that into our work? So at that point I came for, with what I thought at the time, a short-term kind of vision to help her do just that. Uh, but when I got inside, I, uh, Lorraine was a, albeit a, 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 a different uh, leader than me, we, we were very complimentary in the fact that we really wanted to, have the most impact for the clients coming through the doors. So um, working with her for a few years, uh, it, it became clear that she was looking to, to move on and she was very, uh, very passionate in her work that I could probably take it to another level after she left. So I think in all in sense and purposes, I, I think CUPS was just a really good passion platform to bring everything I just talked about in terms of there was so much potential in what you could do to have better impact with the folks that coming through the doors that really kind of lined me up to say, I think we can take this you know, to a different level or, and maybe even a different kind of vision for this nonprofit. And uh, Lorraine was supportive of that and the board was supportive of that. So it really was just kind of like a chunk of time that I kind of saw myself staying. But every time I get to that, to kind of implementing or delivering on the, the, projects and programs and organizational redesign that I had planned, there was a whole new chapter that would present itself to me. So I can say CUPS has, has been a, my journey for about 24 years and it's been a, not certainly did I ever think I'd stay that long when I first walked in the doors, but I am, I personally have never been in an entity or organization that has evolved as much as CUPS and not just more, but better. Like it's become we become better at what we do. We become better at being able to measure the impact we're having. We're seeing more of our families and individuals become self-sufficient and independent, which is exactly the goal I want. So I think for Amelia, to be honest, one of my passions also is tapping into the potential in nonprofits. And sometimes I think people minimize, and maybe in some cases people are comfortable being at, uh, more of a model of short-term kind of transactional kind of uh, services and I, although that's really important and needed, I actually think the potential of nonprofits with their sophistication that is ever growing with the data that they're collecting, which is ever growing with their evaluation measures, which is ever growing with their focus and impact, um, I think we are sometimes underrated and I think we can be incredibly critical as a community um, entity to really seeing more and more families not only get to independence and being resilient, but also preventing it in the next generations. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I would agree. And you brought up a couple of really interesting comments. Um, the first around that nonprofits are starting to move and have moved already 
into this place of using data and evidence uh, to really support the work that they're doing. Um, and the other point that you made that I found really interesting was moving maybe from that transactional type of service delivery to something that is more long-term, something that is more sustainable. Can you tell us a little bit more about CUPS and what kind of services are offered there? Absolutely. So we celebrated our 30th anniversary last September. So we are just shy of 31 years in operations. Congratulations. Uh, yeah, it was, it was a, we, we threw a good party. Good. <laughs> you have to get to fun in these trying times. Um, it was, and, and I think for me, when I look at what really kind of evolved uh, to create cups in the first place, is we started as a health uh, entity that had support services around. So even in the early days with the Beavers and the Knishes and Michael Ward at Center United, it was really around how do we create for those that are moving to the city for a better income, uh, how do we create a quality of life for those and those that are even more marginalized where we have a healthy community, where people are have resources that can help them stay healthy. And so it always evolved. And I would say even in our growing sophistication, that's exactly how we see ourselves. All of our programs are really aimed at getting families and individuals healthy and staying healthy and well in every sense, socially, emotionally, spiritually, physically, mentally. Um, and to me, there is no healthcare if physically, if you are not mentally well or socially well or, or even spiritually well in some cases. Uh, so I think it is a, a full gamut and we've always thought that. So I think that's the, the constant and really being very clear that we wanted to help the most marginalized. So we serve really kind of high-risk families and individuals. And I think that's always been our mandate. We feel we have the expertise designed to that population. So we're very clear on where our expertise stop and start. And we're very clear on what we're trying to do with the folks that walk in the door. So that's what we've evolved is we, our data sets and our, our assessments that we do, uh, we created our own resiliency actually measurement tool that is one questionnaire that everyone gets when they walk in here, gives us a bit of a snapshot. It only takes about half hour to administer this. It's a self-report from the client. There's a script that our staff talk to the client about why if we help the whole person, we're actually getting to the bottom of the root of the problem of what's going on versus just giving you a transactional or short-term you know, fix that you don't really feel helps. So it, nobody, honestly, almost everyone says they are happy to do it because they want to get to those root causes. And so we look at that and then we put a case plan together. It's called integrated care and they are assigned a care coordinator. And then that person does all the navigation internally and externally with the, the client so that they don't have to knock on 17 doors to get six services. Uh, so it's really meant to reduce the barriers for the client, but maximize not only the whole picture of what's going on, but to get to those root causes um, and then put a long-term plan. And we're seeing really positive results of people really, you know, it really comes down to even if they have a house and even if they're socially doing well and they've dealt with addictions, mental health, whatever, a lot of people that have been exposed to really high trauma, which is the population we serve, um, it's ability to be able to manage through a crisis, to have supports, to put a plan in place, to see that plan through, to stay calm in that plan, you know, to feel supported in that plan and to get out the other way with a good solution. And when people have been exposed to trauma and their brain has literally been, you know, in fight or flight mode, um, they, they just don't have the skills and abilities to do that. So we've learned that even though we have to give a lot of concrete supports, uh, we have to give them safe places to learn about these skills and to practice these skills so that they can negotiate and navigate through tougher times and not need to 
to literally let everything fall apart. Um, and that's the difference we're seeing. It really is. So we've always just did the transactions and the short-term support really well. But now we know that missing piece was what was really going on for people that never were taught the skills of being in a healthy you know, household or being able to navigate their life through good and bad. Um, and we're seeing incredibly positive results. So for me, the journey with COPS has been if we know better, we do better, and, and we base that on the brain science, and we work with Haley's Foundation, the Alberta Wellness Family Wellness Initiative, and of course, Center of Development Childhood of Harvard, and that's the latest, greatest science you can have and how brains develop and how we can work with kids and create the best possible brains. So we share that information with our clients, and in the beginning, when we said to our staff, we're going to do this, there was some concerns that it was maybe too complicated and maybe too overwhelming for our clientele, and I've actually experienced just the opposite, and I think sometimes we minimize how smart in some ways our clients are and how much they want to know this information. And it's been a beautiful journey, to be honest, Leah, because, you know, when we talk about, you know, even through the adverse childhood experience, and uh, it looks at all the traumatic events that happened in, in your childhood from 18 and younger, and we talk about the trajectory, uh, the scientific predictions of what you're more likely to be predestined to do and addictions and mental health after a, a measure of four to 10, uh, which is pretty extreme, um, four to 10 in both mental health addictions go up between, as farther it goes up in the number, from 45 to 75% more likely that you're going to have addictions and mental health and social kind of breakdowns and relationships. It's literally a fact. And when we share that with our participants, it's it's been interesting feedback because honestly, I think our staff was way more worried in our focus groups than the clients because we did groups to say, hey, is this information you want? It like what would, what would it look like and how do you want to hear this? And if you do want to hear it, what do you think you need as supports after these kind of things? We don't want to just throw out new things without getting feedback from all entities. And the staff were pretty concerned, but honestly, vast majority of our clients were not concerned. And what we've seen is we share this information with them. And this woman, woman, one woman in our nurturing parent program said it beautifully. She said, do you know that that actually makes sense of me as an adult? It actually is the first time my life made sense and why I always felt I was just drawn to be kind of, you know, screwed up in some ways, right? She said, and it really allows me to forgive myself as a mom. And I thought that was just so, like, for everything we had to do to convince so many people this was important to do, that, that, that was pretty special to hear. That's remarkable, Carlene. Talk about making an impact. And it sounds like for this woman, this was a really defining moment in her life in which the pieces started to fall into place and she could really understand her way of being and how she operated and the reasons behind that as well. So along the same lines, is there another story or two that you could share about the the impact and the change that people are experiencing as a result of this work, um, particularly around the brain science? You know, I, 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 I think there's so many, I will honestly say that, but I think, uh, I think one guy that I will talk about, and he's publicly given us the right to use his name, um, Ed, uh, just, just stands out for me. And I think one of the reasons I'll use him as an example, because there's so many. And well, first of all, I, I'll just say what I said earlier, we are seeing so many more of our individuals and families move into market housing out of our subsidized housing after years of programming, not coming back. So what started really all this, to be honest, for me, was 
you know, after about 10, 15 years ago, I went, how come every time we spend a lot of money and families are doing, when individuals are doing really well and stable in the communities, often we see a good chunk of them in six months to two years come back with nothing. Like, what's going on here? Like, what are we missing? And I think when I started learning through the Alberta Family Wellness Initiative about how brains develop and what derails it, it literally was an aha moment for me of just, that's it. We're not getting to the skills and abilities to cope through really tough times. They are either running, shutting down, or, free, or uh, fighting. This is just their coping skills. They don't have them. They don't have the executive function or self-regulation to really work through, and that's what's going on no matter what we give them. So that was a that was a big aha moment. So I've seen when we started looking at adding that skills and ability, not only knowledge and awareness, but giving them safe places to practice it and get feedback on it. It really did honestly change everything. I will say that. So we've had many, many, many amazing experiences. But one guy, and the reason I say Ed is um, it's really important for us to not forget the men in this scenario, that even if there's issues in the home that have risk factors or, you know, any level of what we perceive as abuse, we have to absolutely take that serious and deal with it and, and, and involve the right authorities. But it doesn't mean we still can't work with each individual in that family. And so I think for me, it's always a constant conversation that we have to equally help the, the men, the single men and the dads in this scenario, even if it's done in a separate way, in a separate entity. And if we can reunite them, then that's, that's wonderful. If we can't, they have to co-parent. That relationship is, 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 to the best of our ability, the most critical two relationships in any child's life. And if we want healthy kids, then we have to give these adults the skills and abilities to be good parents and not be so unemotionally or un, un, you know, equipped to be able to be good co-parents. And if they can obviously evolve to be a family unit together in a healthy way, then that's fantastic. So our goals is obviously to keep families together, but if that can happen, they have to co-parent as best. So with that in mind, we really always focus on the men as well. And, and that's very, very important to me. So we do have a men's uh, group that meets and it's got a bit of a parenting. It's got a bit about emotional management. It's got a bit about uh, abuse for men as well, including sexual abuse. So it has a bit of everything. Um, and it's just been uh, really interesting. So we have this one man Ed, that had a very, very, very challenging childhood um, and really wasn't on a good trajectory, which is as predictable as rain, um, but really chose one day to make some significant differences in his life. And he not only over like a period of a couple of years made incredible changes um, it's just been really amazing and beautiful to see him take leads in some of our parenting programs and leads in, in some of the men's support group, leads in his own child's life, but has just become so vulnerable with us in terms of coming back to us and saying, even to make this level of change um, and to be a good dad and to be a really good just citizen and give back to my community, I want to come back to the places that really helped me and say, how can you best use me? Can I be your voice for that? You know, when I go to my kids' baseball team or I go and I coach on their, you know, volleyball team, they would never in some ways guess that I was, you know, the guy I was 10 years ago, right? Or that I had to use a social system for so long. Um, how can I, you know, support you in letting people know that this isn't us versus them? It's normal. Like when you go through really, really tough things, you're going to self-destruct unless you learn skills and abilities to change that behavior and to manage your own emotions. 
And it's a, he said, it's like, he said, I feel like I'm in AA. He said, I feel my emotional management is never something I'm fully on top on. It's day by day. And I have to remind myself of that. And I think men need to hear that. So it was just, I think he was just such a classic example of someone that not only made transformational change, his softness and vulnerability and willingness to say, I'm willing to stand up and say this for my kids, for me, but for you too. Um, I just, like, he really feels like he owes his community and even us uh, the ability to be that voice. And I think there's something really exceptional about that because sometimes I think we just forget that we have to be the messenger too. And particularly for men, I will say that. I know that can be controversial, but men and emotional management and even being able to understand what they're feeling and the emotions they're going through can still be difficult. And we, I still personally feel we don't socialize them to really embrace that. And he was just so raw and is just so honest about his journey that I'm willing to say it in any context that I just, I, I really think he has been one classic example of someone that wants to take his lessons learned and his success and scale it for others to kind of, you know, fly with his coattails kind of thing. That is amazing, Carlene. And what just struck me to the core as you shared that story is this man's ability to be vulnerable during his journey and to really open himself up to the idea of thinking and doing things differently uh, as he was learning these skills and abilities. 100%. And he's a big guy and he's a tough guy. So it's just even like, he looks like he's physically very fit and just very, um, yeah, he, he, he's, he's a great guy. He really is. Thank you for sharing that, Carlene. That's incredible. Of course. So we know that overcoming adversity and resiliency is really key to the work of CUPS. I'm curious to hear from you. How does leadership factor into this? I think one of the things when I say I want to build a entity that, that creates resilient people, I truly honestly mean that at every layer. Like I think it has to be, we have to have a resilient board of directors. We have to have resilient staff. Um, we have to have resilient clients. And I think there is, and I, 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 this may sound odd to say, but I think there is a, a really important factor in leadership that um, is really about setting a culture uh, that you're in it together. Uh, and in some ways that really kind of means leveling the hierarchy. Uh, everyone, like I personally believe as a leader, a leader, everyone that walks in those doors, I have something to learn from. And as though, and I truly mean that, like I, I'll say it often to some donors when they say, can you be at this meeting? I'll say, I'm not the first person. I'm the CEO. And maybe that's kind of, you think that's an important person to have there, but I do not know as, as much about, let's say, nursery parent is my director of family development. Like you're really just going to get the top umbrella surface and some basic stats. So I really, and I challenge people on that, that, you know, we have to move away from titles into the expert in that particular domain. And I just think in so many layers here, I constantly learn from the folks that walk in the door. Like if I might think I know after 30 years in this business, what the environment being homeless or a single mom of three kids with no high school or whatever those examples are, I don't. No matter what I think I know about homelessness and poverty and what it's like from different personal experiences that uh, what the experience is really like, I don't. So, and it changes constantly, right? So there's, 
more barriers than you can think of out there, but they change. So I'm always asking the folks that I get to uh, sit down with, like, what's what's really hard for you today? Like, and what do you got too much of? Like, just things like that. And I find the same thing with my front line, with my managers, directors, senior directors, the board. I think we all have a different angle in the piece of pie called cups that got to keep us very current. And we have to be hearing each other, not just listening. We have to be hearing each other. And I think that walks us that of or sets the stage for leadership that tells everyone they have a value uh, contribution to make in the whole organization. So we actually even aligned our performance uh, reviews up on this. When you set your performance goal for the year, you have to set individual goals, your team, how it's tied to your team goals and how it's tied to the organizational goals. So we have six strategic priorities that we determine goals each year at CUPS. Everyone has to set their individual and team, their goals up to the team and then to the organization. And my, my focus on that is I want every single person in this building to see how they contribute to the organizational goals and see themselves in it. So I think that kind of leadership is, for me, um, use and power to the best of your ability. Um, I do not feel like I have to be the smartest person in the room. I do not feel like I'm going to never make mistakes. In fact, 100% the opposite. I think it's really healthy to make mistakes. And as particularly the CEO, I think it's healthy for people to see me make mistakes or to say in public arenas that are difficult, I don't know. But you know what? We're working to find out. Or maybe we'll find out together. I think there's something really powerful about being that vulnerable and being that honest and transparent. And to me, that's what I hope I have uh, set as a leadership and a culture that says, we'll be resilient because we'll figure it out together. And we all bring something that's going to help us understand this better and find solutions together. So I would say that would be how I see us. Your comment about making mistakes, I think, is really important. And in leadership, I think it's something that doesn't get as much airtime as it should. For people to see a leader making mistakes is very healthy and not to mention very normal as well. It really does humanize the leader and also highlights that mistakes are how we learn and how we grow and how we get better at what we do. So it provides a bit of comfort for people to realize that it's okay to make an error once in a while. It's okay to go off the tracks when we need to. So along those lines, what's been the biggest mistake that you've made? Oh, there's been many. <laughs> you know what, honestly, uh, and again, I say very true to that. I think when I looked and said, you know, we really are kind of missing the boat of getting to the root of the problem and really kind of looking at skills and beliefs is such a critical factor in this. Uh, it really came as kind of a, a fairly significant or ended up being a very significant transformational change. Um, we, I, and I remember literally, honestly, like it was about 10 years ago when I went to the board of directors and said, listen, I've learned so much uh, about how brains develop and how they get derailed. I, I actually think I know why most of our clients don't succeed long-term. And I think we do have the opportunity to prevent it in next generations, which may be a best case scenario. Um, I mean, when I started rattling off all this and how brains develop and how we're going to look at developing a resiliency tool to be able to measure people's movement. I mean, as you can well imagine, you know, faith, most nonprofits came from faith communities. Most faith communities like, and I, and I mean this, like they are very supportive of transactional things like food and clothes and houses because 
it feels really good to, to see the end result and it feels really good to know that you've helped and they're wonderful, wonderful things. But we weren't really actually doing anything long-term to give people a stronger constitution to endure life's ups and downs, right? So when I really kind of put that on the table, clearly there were some people on a board that are very strong connections to faith communities. And they said, you know, sometimes I, you know, you just always have this long vision and this, this innovative kind of mindset. And, you know, maybe we should just help people and leave it at that. <laughs> so it's funny now, but I mean, they did, and you have to give them credit. It was a, I, there was no one before us doing this. So it was a pretty big, bold idea to bring to them to say, you know, I actually want to look at this as kind of a project change management business framework to say, you know, what would it take for us to be able to change our 13 entry points into our two buildings, make it one, everyone gets the same assessment, and they're tied to a care coordinator that can then reduce the barriers of them having to fill up 14 forms, but also build those skills and abilities. And, you know, it was like, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. You know, like, you, they didn't get it for about, I'd say, at least a year, if not two years. But they, they had enough faith, because I've been here so long, to say, you know, well, take take us through the next three years and see, see where we're at kind of thing, right? So from there, we literally just did that. We literally started doing project management in terms of a canvas, a project management canvas. Of, so we needed something tactile to say, you know, when is the right time to do this project and how does that link to the next six so we're not doing too much at once? What kind of coaching and change management support do people need? So, I mean, this was a massive changing and I can say entities, certain entities in our building took it better than others. It was really tough in our health clinic. Um, I think they they really didn't see why they couldn't just stay a side pillar and because uh, prior to this, we had a health pillar, education pillar and a housing pillar and they kind of worked siloed with you know some kind of organizational kind of shared outputs but very few actually they work quite independently so this completely changed how everyone worked and so i would say there was a lot of uh lots of challenges to that certainly some mistakes made i think i underestimated the amount of reinforcement like in the edcar model i think i thought the desire and the the, the knowledge and the action with the three critical factors were really misunderstood the necessity, as you would well know, of reinforcement, reinforcement, slow and steady, reinforcement, reinforcement. So we brought in a coach that's still with us to do that work, particularly at the frontline and mid-management level, and that's so helped uh, the process. So we slowed down the process at a couple times, learning from our mistakes and realizing we had to input certain pieces. So we definitely followed the very traditional kind of prediction. We had our, you know, 10% resistors, 10% early adapters, and then we had the 80% saying, I get it, believe in it, but this is overwhelming, and I need more support. So, I mean, we made lots of mistakes in the process, but uh, I, again, I think we showed up and admitted our mistakes, said, hey, it was worth trying, but we hear you, we'll slow it down, we'll add this, um, and I think we did, you know, for the better part, get there. So, uh, yeah, I would say there's definitely things we missed the ball on in that, but Again, it was uh, a brand new, very bold endeavor. <laughs> right. It's a huge transition to move from, as you said, something that is relatively siloed to a model that is much more integrated. Now, you mentioned that both the board and the staff had some reservations at first. So what did you have to do to get the buy-in and get everybody on board and on the same page? I think there was kind of a, I, I'm definitely a fan of trying to over communicate and sell. Like I'm just, a, I think if I could say 
one skill set that probably has served me the best. And it, it, it's kind of ironic. Uh, but I, I, I'm, I really think fundamentally, whether you call it fund development, you know, sales, whatever, a sales pitch really has to evolve, making not only the facts straight and what the end result would benefit from, but what's in it for each of the players involved. So I'm quite good at that. And I think that's quite, um, is a bit, was a very important skill in this because, you know, I think everyone just assumes that everyone in profits here to passionately give because they care about the world. And I think that's absolutely true. But people also want to know in the workforce, if I'm doing more, what's in it for me? You know, if I, it's going to take time to do more before we understand what I can give up to balance the Volcom again. Um, why should I do that? Like, you know, either tell, tell me either from the client's perspective or even my perspective, how it's going to make my day easier. And I think you have to be realistic about that. We're not all Mother Teresa's. We want to know that we can actually function in a healthy day-to-day -day environment. So I came prepared to answer those questions and to absolutely be able to say what's going off the plate um, in a reasonable amount of time. And what's like I always said to them, I'm going to tell you the hills I'm going to die on as junctions to this plan. You guys get to decide how you get there. The how is all up to you. And these are the pieces that are negotiable. This isn't what's negotiable. So you build the how to that non-negotiable, and then we'll negotiate all the other factors. So I gave them power in their ability to be the experts in that area and to know the right way to do it. Um, so I think that really made them feel like they also had a say in a lot of things. So, um, you know, for the better part, I don't think some people ever caught on and some people did leave. I think, to be honest, there's still some people that are just going to resist this the whole way. Um, and maybe eventually they'll determine and we will determine because I think we did to some folks. This, you're just not the fit if you really don't want, if you really fundamentally don't believe in this, uh, we're just not the fit for you. And I think I try my hardest to have them determine that versus me determine that. Um, but some of that decision making had to come forward. But I think for the for the 80 percentile, I would say um, it was really that sales pitch of really like hitting those three marks. And I think what was critical was those early adopters that were our definitely champions, particularly the experts in the mid management that were our champions because they they knew the semantics that could be argued. People said, well, this is just too much to do or this is going to better serve our client. They were able to come back and say, actually, that's not true because this, this, and this. So they were critical, I would say. Uh, but yeah, I would say that's, uh, that's probably how we got through it. And I think even with the board, as I just I really believe in almost over communicating, but I was always extremely transparent about what was working and what wasn't working, what I was doing about what wasn't working and what we were going to keep doing and what was working. And again, gave them that sale pitch of what's in it for the board. And I mean, the thing is when I, when I have evidence from Alberta Family Wellness and Center Development Child, and you actually put it into interventions that can be measured against impact, it's hard to argue that it's not gonna be better for our clients, reduce the barriers, and at the end of the day, see more sustainability for the folks that we get independent communities. So, I mean, when you have those facts, anybody in this building would say, of course, I want these families to have less trauma and less chaos in their life. And of course, I want them to manage better when they do have chaos. No one disagreed with that, right? So when you have evidence as well tied to impact, um, there became less and less arguments, I will say. But we still have some, for sure. Right. And I think an element of that is just typical of people's response to change. What's really interesting to me is your strategy on communication 
throughout the change, particularly over communication. And what I heard was that you gave people some options and some control around how they got to that end goal. As you mentioned, there were certain checkpoints that needed to be met, but people had the ability to have a bit of control over the process of how they got to that place. And I think that's something in change that often we maybe underestimate. Change is really hard, as we know, for most of us. And so the ability to give people a bit of a sense of their own control and decision making power is really important to facilitating the process. I will not lie, though, it has been a uh, extreme lesson of patience. <laughs> right. Change is hard. Change is hard. And, and God love them. It's hard on, on people. It is. It's not a it's not a natural affiliation for most people. And I think that's exactly it. So, Carlene, as a leader, what have you learned about community resilience? Do you know, I, I think for me, what I've learned is uh, exactly what happened inside these walls happens when you try and bring change at the community level. Um, again, it's that exact scenario of the early adopters versus the resistors and then the middle just saying, hey, I think it's a good idea, but how do you figure it out? I think one of the things that is on the runway for the nonprofit sector is change is coming and you can either get in front of it and navigate your best place in it and be kind of a in a state of positive disruptiveness or you can resist it um, and that's that's going to get increasingly harder for nonprofits if they resist this um, so it's now about exactly what i said to my staff what role do we want to play in the how and i would hope that resiliency at community level means that we reduce barriers in literally if we know that there's seven services that's needed for this client to really be able to be resilient we should be able to navigate that client without with shared data and with shared care plans and with client consent, of course, be able to move them forward without them having to physically be in every site. Um, and I hope that's the direction we're going because that would expedite a lot of people to get to the root of the problem and all of their, their issues dealt with at a much more faster rate. And I think that would give us a lot more documented impact to even then challenge systems that are getting in the way of that. And I have definitely seen that to be true. And it's not with ill intent, it's just systems are very bureaucratical and it's hard and slow to change them. But there is some certain things that really do block even when a client is working incredibly hard, uh, people from really getting ahead fully. So a single mom that's in Alberta works, you know, going back to school is actually a detriment to her income. So things like that, like it's just, then how was she ever going to make more than 1500 to 2000 a month? So it's, it's almost impossible to get out with, and yet men don't have that same problem. So if we know that 90% of the households, plus 90%, is single women with one to two children or more, um, why are we not addressing that as a priority to women? So it's, and it's, there's things with men that are, are, prior, are our challenge, but I'm just saying there's certain conditions that make for specific challenges that if we, if we view everything from a universal approach, it's actually hindering them further. So I do think the more we can work together and collect, for lack of a better word, collective data and impacts, I think we can challenge these systems to change. And I think that's what it really comes down to, system change. It does. Carlene, yep. 
What have you learned about personal leadership? <laughs> um, to not take yourself too seriously. <laughs> and I truly mean that. I really do think, um, you know, as you get, and, and you would know this, as you get more and more experienced and, and you know, solid, credible track records in your life, it's easy for people to think, to refer to you in some ways as an expert or things. And I think you really have to put yourself in check and say, no, I'm not. Like I, this experience has given me these gifts and these insights, but I need this collective group to really get a whole picture of what's going on. So I really mean that when I say you need to put yourself in check and, and realize that no matter what, um, you're in this together and you bring something but no more or less than anyone to the table. Um, I think the one thing I'm very clear on in this role is there's times I have to make quick and uh, fast decisions that simply are just going to override if there's a discussion that is conflicted at the table. So, and it happens. There'll be times where I'm sitting with my directors and quite frankly, all three of them completely disagree. And in sake of time and in sake of keeping the momentum going, I just have to make the decision. So I'm not unclear about that or to my board of directors, same thing. But I think overall, I really do keep my my myself in check of just what I bring to the table and where they stop and start. And I honestly think that, that allows you to um, be very, like I said, vulnerable and transparent to those around you that um, you know that and uh, they, they can rely on that, but they have to help you with other things. So I think that's just a personal thing that I think is really, really important. I think for me, honestly, Leah, I would say keeping a sense of humor uh, and having some fun. I think no matter what, I know there's a lot of doom and gloom out there, but I say to my colleagues all the time, you've got to have a sense of fun and keep a sense of humor with this because as bad as it gets, if all you see is doom and gloom, that can become addictive and that can become so overwhelming that it's really hard then to see that there's still good things happening. So I think that's a really important thing. And, you know, taking time for yourself, enjoying the simple things. Like, I just think as a leader, that's one thing I am. Uh, there's so many more parts of me that my title certainly doesn't dictate the vast majority of who I am and what I stand for. It really is just another outlet of, of my whole being. So. You know, I think that's just how you have to kind of keep yourself in check as a person. Uh, but I will say that even in light of all, like it's been a really tough go this last five years and it doesn't look like it's going to lighten up this year. So I think we try and keep a positive outlook, but I think it's also been exhausting. So recognizing that at times too and recognizing that in my, my peers and my, my staff um, is really, really important. So I will say that on final note, it is as equally important to me I have that my staff of health and well-being as my clients. So I just never forget that they're both equally important. The clients do not override my staff and my staff don't override the clients. But so it's trying to always remember that as I take care of myself and I'm a role model to them, uh, that they are taking care of themselves as well. And then I set the culture and stage for them to do that. Yeah, it's a balance, isn't it? Yeah. And Carlene, I know what is so important to you is authenticity and bringing yourself to the table. Yes. And it seems to really work for you. Seems to. Seems to, indeed. <laughs> so what's a final piece of wisdom you'd like to offer? You know, when I say this, I do a ton of work, Leah, and this is very, very my, my personal pet uh, projects, but I simply won't refuse an interview from any faculty student that wants to learn about leadership. So to the best of my ability, and I, honestly, I think I'm almost at a 95 percentile, um, I will personally meet with them and talk about that. Um, I think the two things near and dear is people, young and young people that are interested in leadership, but also young women that are interested in leadership. And I, I really say to them every time, if I can close on anything, 
Uh, don't look at a conventional career. Like try and set it up so it doesn't even make sense to you in terms of your your skills and your training and all that, because it will take you to an innovative mindset. Like it really will. And I do think that creates the opportunities to think outside the box. And I think our society needs that more than ever to look at a whole different way of redesigning something that has been an institution for 100 years. And I think that's more and more critical as we go forward. And I think that's true of every sector, business, education, health, nonprofits. You, we need to start looking at breaking everything down and rebuilding it almost in our minds and, and weighing the evidence to the impact on the benefit of that. So benefit analysis, those kind of things. So I always tell them that, like try and think outside the box as much and set the stage to be innovative. So that's really important. And again, that message of don't be afraid to fail. Don't get in your own way of thinking you have to be perfect or you have to be uh, that leader that has all the answers and never gets anything wrong. And I said, it's it's really, what you're trying to set is a culture that you'll try and know to, and be prepared to the best of your ability, but we are human and we some things we're just gonna figure out together. Um, so I think I would close with that. Those are two really, really, lifelong lessons and I always say to people because I think this has been a phenomenal piece of advice I got at 19 years of age one of my actually my religious studies professor Dr. Morrison said to me I said you know I, I want to do I want to have a different life I want in terms of a career but I don't really know what that looks like and he said currently think about what you would say at your acceptance ceremony uh, when you retire what do you want to have said about the person you are and the career you built from and start backwards from there? And I honestly have to admit that was, I never forgot that. And I honestly did do that. Like what would I want to say if I was retiring and I had said, this is the person I am and this is the career I had and this is the impact I had. And I have to admit, I thought that was, uh, it was very meaningful for me for, for many, many reasons. But um, I do always close on that and say, you know, talk about who you want to be at that age and who you were and whether you're proud of that. What profound wisdom you received, even at the age of 19. It was. And that was not yesterday, Leah. <laughs> <laughs> it's all about that legacy we want to leave, isn't it? Exactly. Exactly. Carlene, thank you so much for sitting down with me today. It's been such a pleasure. And your humor and your generous spirit and authentic nature just really come through in everything that you say and do. And I'm so grateful for you being willing to share a little bit of your insights from your lessons that you've learned along the way. And I know the work that you do and that your staff do at CUPS has such a profound impact on your clients. Well, you're very welcome, Leah. It was wonderful chatting with you. I appreciate it being here and, and, and having this discussion with you. So uh, absolutely happy to do it. Thanks so much for joining us today at Central Line, Leadership in Healthcare. Also, if you like what you heard, please head on over to Apple Podcasts to leave us a review. Be sure to subscribe so that you never miss an episode. We'd love to get to know you on social media, so check us out on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram.